Good morning. Welcome to Kahului Baptist Church. Oh, there it is. Welcome. Today is a special day. It's Grandparents' Day. It is national. Yay for grandparents. Yes, yes. Welcome. If you are a grandparent, would you just raise your hand? Grandparents, right here. Oh, look around. Praise. Wow. Praise God for grandparents. You may put your hand down. Let's give a hand for all the grandparents again in the house, formerly. I want to encourage you. Uh, I am so thankful to have grandparents in my children's life who love Jesus. That is just a gift. So if you are a grandparent here and you love Jesus, you are a gift to your children and your grandchildren. An indescribable gift. Paul told Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that the faith that he had dwelt first in his grandmother Lois. Huge, massive, the impact of generational faithfulness to Christ. So thank you and do not, do not, do not discount this season of your life, grandparent, and the impact you can have in your children, your grandchildren, and the eternity of nations. Timothy traveled around with Paul. Your grandson, your granddaughter could very well be the next companion, the next little Charles Spurgeon or, or whoever you want to say that is. And it's your faith that may grow like a seed in their life. So thank you, grandparents. It's also this Friday, this coming Friday, is National Prisoner of War or Missing in Action Remembrance Day an important day. There are uh, many who were in some form, some fashion, for some reason, left behind at the end of our wars. I was just told this weekend in World War I, 17,000 prisoners of war left behind at the end of World War I. Incredible, staggering, if you think about it. And those who are missing in action. So those who have served faithfully, those are families uh, impacted by that. Uh, so remember them this Friday. Take a moment, and as the Lord leads you to remember them, do so. The title of the sermon today is Heaven is for Real. Heaven is for Real. Not because a child claims it so, because John, when the inspiration of the Holy Spirit recorded in his word, this picture for us, so we know it is for real because it is the words of the faithful and the true, the Alpha and the Omega, the Amen. It's God. There is a very distinct pain when a loved one tells you they'll be back and they never come home. Very distinct. There's also a distinct and an indescribable joy you experience when you reunite with a loved one after a prolonged separation. A joyful time when you see them for the first time, maybe unexpectedly or you hadn't seen them. My, my wife and I dated long distance for a year and a half, and uh, that was a very hard time when I was here in uh, Hawaii, separated from her. And I remember every, every time when you're coming to the end of her, she's about to depart. It, it feels like, like water rushing towards a waterfall. Time, it just seems to speed up. The closer you get to that time, the faster it seems to go. And you, you want to slow it down, but it just gets faster and faster. And, and likewise, whenever the time came for them to come back after three, six months, maybe longer, it seems like you just can't wait to see them. And when you see them, it's just like a reun reunion There's a distinct pain when somebody leaves and doesn't come home and a distinct joy of a reunion after a long period of separation. In today's passage, Revelation 21, today's passage describes that indescribable. It gives us a glimpse into that final reunion, the joy of that reunion when the people of God are united with God forever and ever. As the glories of the new heaven and new earth, new Jerusalem descend on this earth. But before we get there, where have we been? We have been in the book of Revelation, seems like for a long time. 
And just like rushing towards the edge of a waterfall, we are fast approaching the end of the book. We have seen four different ways that people have approached studying Revelation. I won't go into those now. I'll go into those next week. Four different approaches. You'll get your answer from me next week as to which approach we've taken, if you haven't figured it out already. might surprise you. We've learned that Revelation as a uh, book, as a whole, is classified as apocalyptic literature or apocalyptic prophecy. This is a type of literature that is highly symbolic by definition. John is writing to the first century church in a hostile environment. He is urging those first century hearers and all who would read afterwards, he is urging them to remain faithful amidst persecution and to avoid compromise. Now, here at the end, John encourages their perseverance in trial, and he does it by showing them their, their inheritance. So he's encouraged so far to not compromise, to, verse, to persevere by showing us what God is doing, and now he's going to show us what God will do, the end of all things, to encourage our faithfulness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a beautiful passage to enter after much judgment. We've seen your judgment in the seals and the trumpets, the bowls, and now we get to see the inheritance of the saints who dwell forever with you. Father, I pray if there are any in here, maybe they doubt the truth of your word. Maybe they doubt your goodness. I pray this morning that you would cause their souls to be born again to a living hope through the power of the gospel. I pray they would hear the gospel truly is good news, that you forgive sinners and that we will forever be with you separated no more. I also pray this morning that those saints in here who are perhaps weary from suffering, circumstances have discouraged their soul. May they have great hope this morning. And Father, we do lift up the preaching of your word through the elders and the saints at Kailua Baptist and Pastor Todd Morikawa and his elder team. We pray you would keep them faithful and make them fruitful. We pray that many on Oahu and that side would hear your word and respond. And I thank you for their ministry there. I thank you for the work of other churches who preach the gospel faithfully. Would you bless the preaching of your word, the hearing of your word, the meditating of your word, the memorizing of your word, and the doing of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's the big idea. The glory of heaven is the presence of God in the midst of a holy people. The glory of heaven is the presence of God in the midst of a holy people. I have two points. Number one, the city's dimensions. Number two, the city's glory. The city's dimensions and the city's glory. Now we have to remember Revelation 21 doesn't come to us by itself, does it? It comes on the heels of Revelation 20 and Chapter 19 and chapter 18 and chapter 17, right? So this is a part of a whole, and we need to look at that whole. And what we're going to see in this chapter in an incredible manner, and I mean it is just mind-blowing, God is going to bring together threads of redemption that began in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start to see already, have, but and more and more as we get to the end, God bringing together threads of redemption began in the very first chapter of the Bible. Beloved, the Bible is not a compilation of disconnected books. For instance, we see the final exodus brought to completion. If you recall, the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus. God brought his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and many wonders, didn't he? Through the plagues, through the crossing of the Red Sea, he rescued and redeemed his people, Israel. 
Now in these last days, God is and will again strike the earth in judgment, described actually with language taken directly from the Exodus, as we saw in the trumpets and the judgments and the bowls. He's going to take language directly lifted out of Exodus and use that to describe his work in these last days. Why? Because right now, God is working such that he brings his people, all of his people, out of Egypt back home. Today, there will be zero POWs left behind in God's purposes. There will be no sheep who are left missing in action. God will bring all of his people home to be with him forever and ever. That is the message of Revelation 21 and 22. The final exodus is completed. And just like the climax of the book of Exodus, you remember, Exodus ends not with the crossing of the Red Sea. It doesn't end with the giving of the Ten Commandments. The book of Exodus goes on through what seems to be very long and boring reading about the tabernacle and the tents and the bowls and the acacia wood and poles covered and scarlet yarns and blue and just again and again and priest garments. And then it ends with the glory of God descending on the tabernacle, dwelling in the midst of his people. That's how Exodus ends. That's how the Bible ends. God, again, dwelling in full living color amidst his people. And so we read in chapter 21, verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What a beautiful ending. Could you think of a better ending to the Bible than what we read here in Revelations 20 to 22? It's the greatest story ever told, and it just all comes full circle at the end in unexpected ways. And so let's move in and learn more. We see that the nature of this city is different. It's different. I asked last week, is this a, city, is this a place, the New Jerusalem? Is it a place or is it a people? I asked you that last week. The city is different because it's mainly describing a people. It's describing a people. Hear the language. It's symbolic but unmistakable. Verse 2, chapter 21. Chapter Revelation 21, verse 2. He says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So you ask yourself there, is this a a literal city or a people? Well, it almost, it's a city still. It's figurative, maybe the bride. This is a beautiful city, like a bride adorned for her husband. But you go forward, check out verse 9 and 10. Revelation 21, verse 9 and 10. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain. Oh, and what did he show me? And he showed me what? The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God like a bride prepared for his lamb. And now an angel comes and he's going to interpret what he's seeing. I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he takes him to a high mountain and he sees what? The holy city, Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven, beloved. A city, literal, or a people, described in symbolic language. I'm going to suggest to you, and you'll see as I unfold this passage, this is a people described in rich, beautiful, symbolic language. Already, verse 1, or verse 9 and 10, The seventh angel with the seventh bowl. If you were to read chapter 17, this is a direct parallel. This happened, this exact same verbiage happens right before 
he is shown the woman, the prostitute, riding on the scarlet beast. We'll talk about this in a minute, which was also a symbol. But first we see the city is described as the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The church, the people of God, are often described with this language as the wife of the Lamb. In Ephesians chapter 5, famous passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 7-9, through we saw the marriage supper of the Lamb. And John is going to describe the radiant glory of the church in her final estate with incredibly breathtaking language. And all of the symbols, you can guess, where do you think he pulls these symbols from? The Old Testament. All of them. You have to remember, too, as I just said, this is the second part of a contrast that began in chapter 17. In chapter 17 of Revelation, John described the prostitute city Babylon riding on a scarlet beast, or wearing scarlet, riding on a beast. We saw Babylon as the city itself is symbolic for the world system in opposition to God. And now we see another woman, don't we? You see the contrast? The prostitute city Babylon in opposition to God and his people contrasted with another woman, the bride of Christ, faithful to her husband. The picture's clear. The woman, the faithful bride, is described as the holy city Jerusalem. So just as Babylon represents all who reject and are opposed to God, the new Jerusalem represents all who accept and have followed Christ and have overcome and conquered. It's a contrast. In verses 12 to 14 of this picture, you get an overview of what the people and the place is like. And then in verses 15 to 27, you get the details. So you'll get an overview, the glory of God, the wall, the gates, and then in the next section you get the details of all of that. The whole thing, this whole section, is modeled after Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, the final temple. We don't have time to cover that. That would be a long section of scripture to read, and you would hate me for doing it. It is not easy reading. The wall is this thick. The door jam is this thick. It just goes on and on and on for that many chapters, but he's describing the end times temple, and what John and in just fascinatingly sees, is seeing that end-time temple fulfilled in the people of God. What Ezekiel did not see with clarity, John now sees and fills in the details. Unfortunately, in our day, most people, most people get their descriptions of heaven from books written on accounts from children like the unfortunately worldwide acclaimed Heaven is for Real book, or the boy who went to heaven and came back. And what many of you may not realize is uh, Alex Malarkey recanted his statement, admitted that everything he said was made up, and is now suing Christian publishers for what they did and capitalizing on that fascinating story. Get your facts of what God is like. Get your facts of what heaven is like. Get your facts of what hell is like and what the gospel is from the Bible, KBC. From the Bible. Please, I plead with you, do not read this rubbish that comes out and sells money and profit from, and, and allow them to profit from you. Unless you plan to read it with the aim of understanding what's out there so that you can present truth more clearly. Otherwise, it is just almost always rubbish. Huh. I could talk more about that. We'll put on. Let's look at what the Bible actually says. 
verse 11, we have the beginning of the overview. We see the, the city comes down, and it is radiant. It's, it's bedazzling. Why? Because God's glory is there. God is there. And it radiates with his splendor. Verse 13, we read about a high wall with 12 gates, three gates on each side of this city. Verse 12 tells us the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are inscribed on these gates. Verse 14, we see this wall has 12 foundations with the names of who? The 12 apostles of the Lamb. We're told in verse 15 and 16 that this city is an interesting shape. Do you recall what the shape is? It's a cube. A cube. A perfect cube. Huh. That's interesting, isn't it? We'll talk more about that in a minute. And it's not just a cube. It's a very, very large cube. 12,000 stadia. Are you seeing this repetition of 12 so far? 12 gates, 12 sides, 12 foundations, 12,000 stadia, 144 cubits thick is the wall. That's important, part of the symbolism. This wall, this, this cube is said to be 1,380 miles, that's 12,000 stadia, long, high, and wide. Think about that. I know you're trying to think about that, but you can't really think about that. Did you know a 1,300-mile-high city would extend into outer space, past low orbit, past all of these things? Most U.S. satellites orbit at about 50 or 60 miles. This would be way past that, 1,380, 12,000 stadia. This is one of many clues already that this is symbolic. It's trying to capture your mind and your imagination. There's more, there's more already. We've already seen some clues, but this is one of many. There's also multiples of 12s in this passage. As I noted, 12 gates, 12 foundations, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 12,000 stadias. The wall, we find, is 144 cubits now. We'll talk about the, the measurement there, but there are 12 jewels of every kind. There are actually 12 descriptions of various 12s in this chapter. Hmm. I identified seven for you. Your homework is to go find the other five. Have fun. It's one of those pictures. How many, how many bananas do you see in this picture? We do these games with my kids, and they got to find them. There's 12 12s in here. You find them. I gave you seven. Don't do it now because you'll miss what I'm going to say next. You have to find the other five for your homework. This multiple of 12, these on top of each other, is important. This is a cube. This is the other aspect that's important about this cube. You think about it. The only other cube in the Bible is found in, there's only one other mention of a cube in all of the scriptures. One other place you find a cube. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20. We're not going to read it, but it's the dimensions of the Holy of Holies in the temple. It's the only other cube in the Bible. The Holy of Holies is cubic. It's the only other dimensions we have that record something that's a cube. The Holy of Holies is the place where only the high priest could enter after extensive ritual cleansings and only at appointed times. Only at appointed times. So you just think, here's the Holy of Holies, the, the most sacred place in Jewish, uh, Judaic worship, and only the high priest can enter there after extensive ritual cleansings and only at appointed times. One man. The symbol is profound. What's it saying? What once only the high priest had access to. Here's the message. This is what the symbol is saying. The cube city. What once only the high priest could enter and had access to. In the end, beloved, 
All of God's people are going to dwell in the Holy of Holies. All of God's people will have access to perfect union in the presence of God forever. That's the picture. And we mistake this if we think this is to be a literal cube. This is a profound picture. As we said, if it were literal, the heights of the city would, would go into outer space. It would be higher than our satellites. But it's not meant to be seen as literal. This is, this is a picture. The wall is another clue that this isn't meant to be taken overly literal. The measurement of the wall is 144 cubits. 12 times 12 is 144. There's that multiple of 12s again. Literally, we're not meant to take it literally, but... If we were, it would be 218 feet. Now, it doesn't say, is it 218 feet high or is it 218 feet thick? It doesn't tell us. The Great Wall of China, has anybody ever been there? The Great Wall China, anybody? Few, very small few. Has anybody ever uh, scaled the Great Wall and climbed over it? Congratulations, you are Genghis Khan. No, um... The Great Wall of China is the longest wall or walls on the planet. It measures 13,170 miles long. The average height of the wall is 20 feet to 23 feet. The average width would be about 21 feet. Walls for protection, some pride to the country, and defense. Like all walls in the ancient world, they are for protection. Now, if this wall is only 215 feet high, then I'd suggest, if we're taking it literally, it is very disproportionate to the city, isn't it? The wall is 1,380 miles high. The city itself, sorry, not the wall, the city is 1,380 miles high, but the wall is only 218 feet high? That would seem very disproportionate if it were literal. So some have said, oh no, it's not talking about height, it's talking about thickness. It's 218 feet thick or wide. Well, that for sure would be a very wide wall, no doubt. However, for a wall to stretch 1,300 miles into the sky, it would need a much thicker wall than 213 feet to even begin to be stable and not topple over. So if it is literal, either high or thick, it's very disproportioned or bad engineering. And I think this misses both points to take it to literal. Again, this is a sign both of the protection and security of the people of God, the wall, and of the unity of the people of God. Twelve times twelve. The only other place we saw that number, twelve times twelve, was with a multiple of a thousand. Twelve times twelve times a thousand is what? Some of you are like, calculator, where's my? 144,000. Ooh, where did we see that? In Revelation chapter 7, when that represented the unity of the people of God, 12 from the old, 12 from the new, multiplied by a thousand, and John sees gathered around the throne an innumerable mass of people from every tribe and tongue and people and language worshiping God, clothed in white, victorious. The number 12 throughout Revelation stands for the people of God or emphasizes the completeness and unity of the people of God. This is what's being stressed throughout in this chapter with all the compounding of 12s. Remember, this is not describing a literal city. It's describing a people, the bride of the Lamb, consisting of the one people of God, Jew and Gentile, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, united in the same structure, gates with the tribes inscribed, foundations with the apostles' names inscribed, united in the same structure to emphasize the completeness 
and the totality of the people of God dwelling with God forever and ever. Get this, even the jewels described in verses 19 through 20, guess how many jewels there are? Twelve. Even the jewels described in verses 19 and 20, that I think not only Paula struggled to read some of them, but I think we all would struggle to read some of them. I don't know that I've ever seen an amethyst in my life. I'll see it one day, maybe. The beauty of those jewels, even those, interestingly enough, come from the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 28. Those jewels were to be woven and embedded in the priest's breastplate. On each of them was inscribed a name of the tribe of Israel so that the priest would bear them in remembrance before the Lord in his work. Now, you would expect, perhaps, as some say, that Jews and Gentiles will be separate in this economy. You would expect to find those 12 stones on the gates with the 12 tribes of Israel. But that's not where they're found. Where are they found? They are found embedded on the foundations with the names of the 12 apostles. Why? Because this indicates to us the one people of God, not distinct, separate, but one united together in Christ forever and ever. This is our inheritance forever to be with the Lord. So we see the city's dimensions. We could talk a lot about that, but I want some time for application, and this is not a seminary course on Revelation, so perhaps one day we'll do that, but we would need much more time. Number two, the city's glory. The city's glory. I just want to read this again because it's worth reading and it's not long. Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will all the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. The picture of the gates never being shut further emphasizes this picture of security. If you have a wall at nighttime, what do you do? You shut the gate to keep out enemies or intruders. If you remember the famous story of the Greek war between uh, the Greeks and Troy, Troy had an impenetrable wall. And they shut the gates when the enemies would come and they, they could not penetrate through the gates. And so there was the famous what? Trojan horse. And they entered the city, men, hidden soldiers inside the horse. And then they opened the gates and the gates and the city fell. The picture here of the gates and no more nights is another sign of our security forever with God. There will be no enemies, no threats, no danger, because God will protect his people. And all of this language is meant to stretch the capacity of your imagination. It is meant to show the brilliance and the beauty of the inheritance for those who overcome. But by far the best part, the most satisfying part of heaven, the most memorable, the most sought after, is being with God. Being with God is the best part of heaven. We see there's no temple. There is no sun or moon. Now, people ask, is that literal or symbolic? It could be both. Could, it, there's arguments that could go literal. It, there's arguments that it could go symbolic. But the point is that the glory of God radiates such that if there is, there's no need for one because God is there. This is also one of the most incredible statements on the divinity of Christ in the Bible. Because the glory of God and the Lamb are there. We forever worship them. This aspect is missing from many popular books. Often, the books that you might read are focused on 
details of angels, Satan, his teeth, what, what your loved ones look like and your deceased ones who have gone before you, things like that. Very few of them are just captivated again and again with the glory of God. This section opened and it, the very first thing it says before it gets into any of the descriptions is that the radiance of God is there. And then it caps it off again with God. God is glorious. God is beautiful. And this is what we miss often. This is the best thing. This is what the saints longed for, to see God's face unhindered. And that's what heaven is. Heaven will be being with God forever and ever and ever, and ever, or we could say it like the character from Sandlot says, forever, for, right? That's our inheritance for those who overcome. That's our great hope, worshiping God free from sin and the distractions of the flesh. That is what hinders your spiritual life today, isn't it? The times that you feel most satisfied, are those not the times that you feel closest to the Lord? And aren't those times that you feel closest to the Lord fleeting? Don't they feel fleeting and brief? And you just wish you could stay there forever? And sometimes it's hard to get back there? Sometimes you're praying and you feel like, okay, I got like, out of 10 minutes of prayer, maybe 30 seconds of those really felt like I was talking to God, and I just wish I could stay there, but then all of a sudden, a distraction comes. What am I going to do? What meeting do I have today? What, oh, my alarm went off. A text vibrated me. I got to do this. Oh, I'm so behind on that. How, right? And, oh, no. Pray. Pray. That's right. Yeah, talk to God. Right? And we do this again and again, or, or we read. And these are the weaknesses of the flesh and our sin that hinder us from having full communion with God and beloved forever in heaven, you will be there unhindered. Whew. There's so much in this passage I want to talk about, but I want to apply it because you think, man, that's awesome. Yes, I want that. I want that. But now I'm here. What do we do? Number one, application. If the greatest part of being in heaven is being with God, cultivate a love for time with him now. If the greatest part of being in heaven is being with God, cultivate a love for him by spending time with him now and his people. There are many people that I'm astonished that spend their whole lives bashing the church, bashing things, bashing God, reject Him, but think they'll be in heaven. To which we would say, even if you did go to heaven, what would make you think you'd want to be there? Heaven is all about God. And if I'm not about God now, why would I want to be about Him forever and ever? That, to me, would be miserable. You see? If heaven is being with God, cultivate a love for time with Him now. Do it through the spiritual disciplines of grace. There is no substitute for godliness, but discipline. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And you say, what does that mean? How do I do that? We have a whole class on that just began in Jim Wilson's class here on spiritual disciplines. Wonderful class. You should take it if you have that question. You're a new believer. You should take that class. You're a believer who's never been taught how to do the spiritual disciplines. You should take that class. You've learned how to do the spiritual disciplines, but you've fallen off the track. You should take that class, right? You need to be in your Bible and praying to do anything else to grow in the Christian life. It's impossible to do so without it. Cultivate a love for time with him now. There are other ways to cultivate that love in addition to, not in replacement of. Cultivate a love for the arts and see that God is the great musician. Thank you, Nick, for helping us to see that. 
Cultivate a love for nature and see that God is the beautiful designer. Cultivate a love for math and see that God is the great mathematician. Cultivate a love for science and see that God is a God of order, structure, and complexity. And you will find your soul singing time and time again. Cultivate a love for history and see the sovereign hand of God moving and governing the affairs of men. And say with the wise Solomon, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. That will cultivate a love for the things of God as well. We should love the corporate people of God, the bride of Christ. We saw this earlier in chapter 19. It's worth mentioning again. Kahalui Baptist Church, the church as a whole, will one day be beautiful beyond measure. It'll be glorious beyond description. Christ loves his imperfect people through their imperfections. Think about that. Christ loves you as imperfect as you are. Through your imperfections, we should strive to do the same. Now, this doesn't mean he tolerates disobedience. It doesn't mean he turns a blind eye. But it does mean he moves redemptively towards his people and views them in Christ. I've told people before, I've told you this before, I've never met somebody who said they hated my life and we were, my wife and we were good friends. I've never met somebody who, who met my wife and said, you know, pastor, I like you, but I just can't stand her. We are not going to be good friends. You and I will not be buddy-buddy because my wife is my own self. She is my one flesh, you see? And how many people do that to Jesus. I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. I love the Jesus, but the church has so many imperfections, and they reject his wife. Do you think the master will do well when you stand before him and congratulate you? He fashions this group of imperfect people, imperfect me, as his bride. Let us reflect that same intimacy in our language and actions toward each other, KBC. I'm going to say this. It needs to be said. I am astonished and often discouraged. I'm just going to bear my heart with you, my pastoral heart with you. And I am not alone as pastors. You can talk to many pastors who would say the same thing. I'm astonished at how quick Christians are to look negatively on one another. How quick we are to make negative assumptions on other believers. We are supposed to think well of one another. We are supposed to believe the best in love about the motives and intentions of each other. And yet it seems many Christians do the exact opposite many times. They assume the worst motives and jump to the most devastating conclusions and then speak out of that assumption or talk to others about it without ever having ever sought clarity or counsel or prayer. This is a great evil, Kahului Baptist Church, and we need to grow in it. I'm serious about that. We have grown in many ways, and I don't ever want to take that away, and God is doing an incredible work here. But this needs to change. We need to change. In order to be what God intends us to be, we must see imperfections and love one another through them and in them, because one day... This description will be us, and there will be no more sin. There will be no more pain, just victory and unity brought together in the presence of God. The last point of application I want to make is what hope of heaven, what does the hope of heaven give us amidst suffering now? How does this practically play out? Maybe you're here today. 
and you're here suffering under a health condition, maybe a chronic health condition, maybe you're here suffering under a, what, we, what some would call a mental health diagnosis of some sort, depression, something of that nature, and, and some emotional strain that all these things can bring, or maybe you're just here with guilt from a past decision. You struggle to face it each day. Every day you feel like that you wake up is a victory, even if you get nothing else done. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe somebody in here is like that. What does this picture of heaven do for us in the weeds of life? First, it's worth saying again, heaven is about God. Heaven is about God fundamentally. It's not about me getting back all that I lost through suffering here. It's not about me getting back all the joy I lost through suffering here. Fundamentally, it's about bringing glory to God. And the scriptures testify that in my suffering here, get this, as we suffer and persevere faithfully in suffering, God is actually honored and glorified by our endurance. And in heaven, it will all be worth it. We have to say that fundamentally. Adding to that now, the hope of heaven helps you control your difficult emotions of bitterness, grief, anger, jealousy, resentment, and other things that can accompany suffering. It helps us control these difficult emotions. The Puritans used to speak about suffering and say it helped us to ask for less in this life because we know more is coming in the next. They called it the art of suffering. They said suffering or living with chronic suffering had the art of diminishing our expectations. It diminishes our expectations and our list of wants for what we have here on earth and it increases our desires and our investment in the eternal life to come. You see how suffering do, does that? It decreases my list of wants and needs and, and things I feel like I want here, and it increases simultaneously my longing and my investment in heaven. Jonathan Edwards said, everything we do on earth either increases or decreases our capacity for joy, worship, and service in heaven. Think about that. Everything you do today in your suffering or trial, whatever it is, either decreases or increases your capacity for joy, worship, or service in heaven. So you can choose to dwell on bitterness or grief or despair or pain or you can call your soul by faith to abide in Christ. You can cause your eyes to look to heaven and persevere while you depend on the moment-by-moment moment grace of God to sustain you till the end. And living presently, how do we see presently, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, how do we see according to unseen realities? How do we live this life with what we see according to the realities of that we, what we don't see? Suffering has a tendency to expose or tempt us to be me-focused, doesn't it? Think of all the times you suffered. Who do you think of the most? Me. I don't, I don't feel good. I feel very bad. I am very sick. I need your help. I need food. I need this. This, how will this strengthen me? How will this make me a better person? I, I need to get this done or that done. How am I going to engage my family, play with my children, love my spouse? How am I going to do all these things? I need this. I need that. People don't think about me or the Christian version. Why did God let this happen to me? How can this be good for me? How is this going to change me into the image of Christ? 
And these are all understandable, but that's what suffering tends to do. Tempt us to that place or expose that place in us. And what suffering does, what God does in suffering, rather, is he files away slowly that me-focus, that me-centeredness of my life. And in suffering, God teaches us, sometimes very painfully, to depend and to look to him for his goodness and his grace. And as we do that, we find that he is a mighty fortress and a shelter in trouble. Thinking about yourself, it has been said, is one of the worst forms of suffering. To think about yourself all the time is one of the worst forms of suffering. But as you see your circumstance of suffering as a tool to chisel away your satisfaction in anything other than God, it all of a sudden can turn into a powerful weapon against Satan's devices. See, beloved, your suffering presents you an opportunity, a a unique opportunity to display the beauty of God, the sincerity of your faith, and the glory of God in a way that nothing else can. When you suffer and, and, and it's stripped away from you, all the things the world says brings joy, when all those things are stripped away from you and you say that you still have the joy of the Lord, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, you show the world there is a joy that the world cannot offer. And that joy of the Lord, that Hope of heaven turns heads. So, beloved, in closing, as we trust in Christ, we will all make it to Revelation 21 and 22. And I close with our fighter verse. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the Kahului Baptist Church, in your suffering and your struggles, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, fill our hearts with an eager, expectant longing for the day that we see you face to face. And may we live pure and holy lives in this world. Help us. We need help in our suffering to display your glory. Would you help us? Some in here are suffering now, Father. I ask that right this minute, your spirit would give their souls encouragement to know how deep and wide and long is the love of Christ for them. And I pray that they would walk in that life and overcome. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.